Hey there, my name's Nick, and welcome to the Anamnesis Podcast. An anamnesis is a recollection of a medical history, and in this series I want to share with you historical events and how they've affected our understanding of medical science. This episode I want to talk about the Battle of Britain, fighter plane design, and how these two things influenced Sir Peter Medawar to make discoveries that would lay the groundwork for safe transplantation of organs from person to person. What General Vagon called the Battle of France is over. I expected the Battle of Britain is about to begin. In 1940, at the beginning of the Second World War, having successfully taken France, the German forces turned their sights to Britain. This is part of Winston Churchill's address to Parliament, rallying the support of the country to fight on. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free, and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us, therefore, brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. Hitler had ordered his air forces to cripple the country through devastating bombings, with the primary objective of wiping out the British air defences. The Royal Air Force was charged with defending the realm from the hordes of German Luftwaffe and Messerschmitt Bf-109s. Throughout the summer and early autumn, battles raged overhead as the British valiantly fought for supremacy of the skies in terrifying dogfights. The two main fighter planes used by the RAF at the time were the famous Spitfire and the equally formidable Hurricane. Now, to understand the significance of this, we need to know a little bit about 1940s fighter plane design. The Spitfire was designed for speed and agility, with extremely sensitive controls, and was therefore effective against the Messerschmitt fighters. However, the sensitive controls made it harder to handle, and it had a higher rate of stalling during combat. The Hurricane was regarded as a relatively easy plane to fly, and had a higher cockpit position which gave the pilot a clearer view over the nose towards the front of the plane. This aircraft was primarily used against the large but slow Luftwaffe bombers. One main drawback of the Hurricane design was the positioning of its fuel tank. This was placed directly behind the engine and would therefore catch fire easily if damaged. When damaged, it would billow back flaming fuel onto the pilot, causing severe burns before he even managed to bail out. This was important because during the Second World War, the unprecedented increase in the number of burns patients left doctors and scientists desperate to find a good way to treat them. One summer night, the occupants of Oxford watched in horror as a flaming plane fell out of the sky. It crashed close to the home of Dr. Peter Medawar, a cellular biologist. The medical team that arrived on the scene found the pilot severely burned. They asked for Dr. Medawar's help, thinking that his research into the development of cells might be able to help with the management of their patient. He knew that the only chance for the pilot was a skin graft from a donor. But sadly, he also knew that these almost always failed. A few weeks later, as predicted, the grass failed and the pilot died from his injuries. 
Since then, Medawar became fixated on the problem of skin grafting and helping these victims of burns. In a quote from one of his books, he says, I believe I sought as my métier to find out why it was not possible to graft skin from one human being to another, and what could be done about it. He obtained funding from the Medical Research Council to work with a surgeon in Glasgow to investigate the problem of graft rejection. They found that grafts from donors, even siblings, always failed after about two weeks. But interestingly, also found that subsequent grafts from the same donors would fail much, much sooner. Using some further research on grafting in rabbits, Medawar and colleagues confirmed their suspicions. The cause of graft rejection was immunological, and the reason for the first lag was that the body was identifying the graft as foreign material and mounting a response against it. The subsequent grafts encountered an immune system that already knew how to fight them off, and so were rejected much faster. Medawar was also one of the first to show that immunosuppression using hormones called corticosteroids could prolong the life of grafts in animal models. This work on the immunology of grafting laid the groundwork for organ transplants of the future and saved many, many lives. According to the immunologist Dr. Avrion Mitchison, his research performed the immensely important service of making transplantation scientifically respectable. Medawar and colleagues would eventually go on to win the 1960 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for their work. In 1954, in a move that would further confirm Medawar's hypothesis, the first living donor kidney transplant took place in Boston, USA. The recipient was Richard Herrick. He was suffering from end-stage renal disease and was dying. Luckily, he had an identical twin brother, Ronald. Ronald consented to donating his own kidney to his brother. The surgeon was Joseph Murray, a plastic surgeon who had worked helping to reconstruct the hands and faces of wounded soldiers during the Second World War. During this time, he noticed that skin grafts from identical twins were not rejected. This, along with Medawar's work on the immunology of transplantation, led Murray to believe that solid organ transplantation should be viable between identical twins. He thought that they should have the same biological fingerprints as, as each other, and therefore the organ should not be rejected. It turns out he was correct. The transplant was successful and survived without rejection until Richard Herrick died eight years later of unrelated causes. Murray would go on to be a pioneer in transplantation science and anti-rejection medicines, and would eventually receive his own Nobel Prize in 1990. Over the next decades, multiple ways of suppressing the immune system were trialled. As in Medawar's work on rabbit models, corticosteroids were used, but the side effects of using these in high doses for long term were undesirable, leading to bone wasting, central obesity, and cardiovascular disease. The use of x-rays to wipe out the patient's immune system was also trialled, with some initial success. However, it was found for some patients the radiation was too powerful, and many would die from this therapy alone. It would not be until the late 1950s that scientists would discover the first non-steroid immunosuppressive drug, azathioprine. In 1962, using a regime of both azathioprine and steroid, the first unrelated kidney transplant was successful without rejection. You may ask yourself, why is transplant surgery so important? Why do countless scientists spend their lives trying to improve this field of medical science? And why have so many Nobel Prizes been awarded for people who have pioneered immunosuppressive therapies? Transplantation is an extremely important field. It is an excellent treatment for many people and life-saving for all. For example, those requiring a new heart, lung or liver would surely die without a new organ. Those with end-stage kidney disease become dependent on dialysis, a form of artificial filtering of the blood. But this alone comes with its own risks and strains on the body, and their mortality is much higher than if they were to receive a new kidney. 
I've been talking to Professor John Forsyth, who, as well as being a transplant surgeon in Edinburgh, holds many accolades, such as former president of the British Transplant Society, former president of the European Society of Organ Transplantation, chief of transplant surgery for Scotland, and medical director for NHS Blood and Transplant. I've been asking him about why transplantation is important. I mean, it's a fantastic form of therapy. People still think that it is in some way research treatment, um, but of course the results now are better than many major interventions in hospital. Um, And that's just looking at the ball figures. If, um, you know, as as a clinician, I walk along a corridor and somebody will say to me, you know, Prof, are you not speaking to me today? And, and it's because it's somebody who has changed so remarkably from the time of their transplant that I don't recognise them. And, and, and that is the change that occurs, that somebody is close to death um, uh, and, and the, the power of transplant is to return them to, apart from taking some, some few tablets of anti-rejection medicine, they are returned to normal. And, and, and that's an, a massive transformation. Um, and it's, it's one that gives a huge amount of satisfaction in a, in, in a clinical job. Because transplantation is such an important treatment for so many people and has the ability to transform their lives, we want to make sure that we keep these transplanted organs healthy for as long as possible. One of the main issues standing in the way of this is rejection, whereby the body launches an immune response against the donor organ in an attempt to destroy it. I asked Professor Forsyth about what we can do to prevent rejection and how immunosuppression has improved throughout the years. I know you're interested in the, in the history of this and then just going back to when, when I was first involved in transplantation, which would be uh, late 70s, early 80s, uh, you know, then all we had really was uh, um, steroids and azathioprine um, to try to get over uh, rejection. Um, people had abandoned the use of radiation, but remember people did that as well to try to, uh, to overcome rejection. And, and as a result, we saw rejection very frequently. In fact, we, we almost expected rejection in every patient who had, been, who had received a transplant. Uh, and quite often we found that organs were, were lost because of rejection. Um, as the years have gone by with better immunosuppressive treatment, we now see much, much better results. We understand the immunology of rejection much better than we did, but we still haven't found the magic cure. You know, the, the, the thing that it's always said to be the holy grail of transplant um, uh, immunology and transplant surgery is to achieve tolerance so that somebody can accept tissue from another person without the need for immunosuppression. There are many examples in science where, where models of that have been created, usually in animal experiments, but we have never seen that uh, um, in, uh, in human transplantation uh, with certainty and, uh, and being able to follow that. So because of that, uh, we, we still need to do more scientific research into rejection, even though it is much better treated now than it was when I first came into uh, to, to the discipline. I asked him about immunological treatments used today and what they mean for the patients taking them. The, the treatments that we give are in, yeah, in, in general tablet form. Um, uh, the, 
there are some drugs that are still um, given, which are given by, uh, by uh, into the vein, by an infusion into the vein around the time of the transplant. And those are so-called um, monoclonal antibodies. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an antibody preparation that has been uh, perhaps uh, um, designed to be against one particular cell type in the body. Um, uh, or alternatively uh, against a number of the cell types and that can be given around the time of transplant. Um, that is, does not need to be repeated um, uh, more than during the time that the patient is in hospital so that after the, the recipient goes home and hopefully the transplant is working well they will um, simply be taking tablets sadly quite a few times a day, but as the risk of rejection recedes, because rejection happens much more frequently early after the transplant rather than late, we are able to reduce the tablet so that after, let's say, three months after the transplant, the patient is able to start reducing the number of tablets that they take, and eventually they will be on a, a, a dose of anti-rejection medicines which is reasonably small. It has to be continued. Um, uh, you know, there have been experiments where where people have tried to stop uh, anti-rejection medicines many years out, and in certain cases, particularly with liver transplantation, for reasons we don't understand, that does seem to be successful. But in the main, if you stop taking anti-rejection tablets many years after the transplant the rejection will still happen. So we do tell people that they need to keep on taking those tablets. All treatments, however, have their downsides and compromises. Each of them, um, of course, has uh, its own set of side effects, you know, if, as you would imagine with any drug that you, can, you, you take. But if you look overall, of course, you, you, it stands to reason. You are, you are dulling, you are taking down the level of our immune system so as it accepts protein from another person, that is the, the, the organ that has been transplanted. And therefore you can imagine that immunity um, um, has come down slightly against um, other risks such as infection. And, and, uh, and that is one of the things that we warn our patients about and particularly when they're taking high levels of the anti-rejection medicines immediately after the transplant, we, we do various things, uh, in, including giving them extra drugs, to avoid certain infections. Even after many years, uh, I think transplant patients do still try to you know, avoid going into an area where there is known to be um, uh, you know, childhood illnesses or flu or whatever, something like that. And we do warn about um, the risk of infection long term. We also know that some of these drugs, um, because they take the immune system down, your immune system there is partly also to, to, to deal with cells that are abnormal in any way. So that we know that certain forms of tumours, certain forms of cancers, can be more common in patients who have taken anti-rejection medicine over many years. Uh, now, happily, most of the the um, forms of tumour that uh, that we uh, we know about are actually relatively easily treated. For instance, like some of the skin cancers. So, if people 
um, you know, try to make sure that they don't get too much sun, uh, which of course is, is, uh, promotes skin tumors. Um, and uh, if they keep a wary eye out for changes in the skin, then we can stop them getting that problem um, many years down the track. But, but infection and tumors would be two of the major things that we talk about when we, when we talk about anti-rejection medicines and their, their downsides overall. One of the key processes of working up an organ for transplantation is called tissue matching. This is where doctors see how closely a donor organ matches the biological signature of the recipient. Here's Professor Forsyth talking about some of the history behind this and its importance. We go back to, again, with a historical sort of look at that, you will go back to uh, the, the sort of turn in the 1900s, early 1900s. We first of all found about blood groups and found that those are important, first of all, to you, you, you mustn't give an incompatible, um, so a, a, uh, a donor organ that is markedly different from the blood group of, uh, of the uh, recipient. Um, and that was the first leap forward. And then it was probably, what, 1950s, 1960s, where we started learning that, that tissue type was important. And that, that's, uh, in simple terms, is, is the fact that on the surface of all of our cells are proteins that define me as me and you as you. And, and those proteins um, can be stratified, numbered, if you like. And we, we now know um, that the better the match, that tissue match is between individuals, the more likely it is that we are able to have a successful transplant and rejection is less likely. Um, you know, we learned that some of the very first successful transplants were between identical twins. Um, and, and that sort of was one of the, 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 the things that kick-started clinical transplantation because we realised the similarity between cells, between the, the, those, those proteins on the surface of those cells became very important. So tissue typing, tissue matching, the match between the donor and the recipient, all those things mean the same thing largely, that we need to try to match as best we can uh, between the donor and recipient to get a successful outcome for the transplant. For organs such as the heart and lungs, live organ donation is not possible. However, for some organs such as kidneys, it is. The outcomes from live organ donations are generally better than those from deceased donors. I asked Professor Forsyth why this might be and whether better tissue matching might play a role. Because you are able to, you have a period of time to work up the donor, then you can make sure that donor is very fit, that their kidney function is very good. And we can check, as you're, uh, as you're uh, um, hinting, we can check their tissue type an awful lot better. Um, but of course, in, in general terms, people who want to give a kidney to somebody else and go through that surgical procedure with its own risks attached to it, in, in general, those people are, are, are tend to be close to the individual. They tend to be family members. And, and therefore, if you like, that's more likely that they are going to share a similar tissue type. Not necessarily the same, but a similar one. Um, but as, as we've got more clever with anti-rejection medicines, we now know that you can still do live donor transplantation even when people aren't particularly well matched. Um, 
I remember doing the very first in probably 1990s. Uh, I remember doing the very first spouse to spouse transplant. So uh, uh, a wife gave to her husband. Um, and of course, they weren't well tissue type. They weren't well matched. Um, but in fact, because we are able to make sure the kidney is in, in perfect condition, because it is a very short time between it being removed from the donor and put into the recipient, the results of live donor kidney transplant, even when there isn't a good match, are still very successful. They're not still quite as good as if you had a perfect tissue match between, let's say, brothers or, 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 or uh, other members of the family, but they're still very good. So, yes, live donor transplant is in general better than deceased donor transplant, um, but we can do live donor transplant between people who are not um, if you like, from the, the same blood um, family. I asked whether we need increased doses of immunosuppression for patients with poorer tissue matching. No, um, the, you, you um, perhaps monitor the patients a little bit more closely um, uh, and the risk of rejection is slightly higher. Um, but uh, the, in, in general, the levels of immunosuppression that, uh, that we give now are more or less standard for most cases um, uh, and we uh, therefore uh, are able to get really very good results overall. As you can imagine, patients undergoing transplantation are always wary of rejection. Even beyond the first few months where the risk is the highest, rejection is always possible. Here's Professor Forsyth talking about the monitoring of patients with transplants and how we detect the early stages of rejection. So, so all patients will, um, and it depends obviously on the, on the organ that we're talking about, whether we're talking about kidney, liver, lung or whatever, we, there are tests that, that can be done and monitored very carefully. And, and um, obviously um, patients are seen very frequently after the transplant um, uh, and those tests that are specific to that organ can be carried out. And if they look as if they're going off, of course, there are a whole load of reasons why the tests might be not as good as they had been before. But if that happened, then the patient would be reviewed and, if necessary, brought back into hospital. And uh, we can uh, do further tests, including biopsies of the, of the transplant organ, to look for rejection and to see whether that is indeed causing a problem. I mean, it's... it's, it's it's sad that one of the, the, the drugs, which has been a fantastic um, drug um, uh, as an anti-rejection medicine, is also not very good in high dose for kidneys. Um, so, so actually, it's, it's odd that you, know, you might get, for instance, the kidney function of a transplant um, recipient who has received a kidney transplant. Um, you might find that the kidney function isn't quite so good. Uh, and that could be either because of rejection, but it could be because the dose of the drug is slightly too high. So we, we need to monitor, we need to look after the patient, make sure that they remain well, make sure the function remains stable, and if it doesn't, look for reasons why that might be the case. Earlier on in the interview, Professor Forsyth mentioned the so-called holy grail of transplantation, immunological tolerance. I asked him about this and whether he thought we were close to achieving this in humans. There's an old joke in, in, in transplant medicine which says that um, tolerance um, is just around the corner and has always remained just around the corner. So quite often, as, as I hinted, um, 
sometimes in science there are papers that suggest that that uh, perhaps in um, a model of transplantation that it looks like tolerance is uh, is possible but when you try to do that in 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 you know like clinical human to human transplantation it doesn't turn out to be quite as effective that doesn't mean that people aren't still looking yes of course they're looking for newer newer um, drugs looking for ways in which we can um, uh, we can monitor and perhaps slightly fine-tune the immune system to make sure that we, uh, we uh, if you like, s stop the immune system reacting to only the proteins from the donor organ. And if we were able to do that, then of course that would be a major step, if not actually the major um, uh, progress to tolerance. At the moment, it's not possible, um, but we continue to, um, uh, to look at uh, ways in which it might be possible in the future. Now, turning to transplantation on the whole, you often hear about the long waiting list for organ transplants, and this can cause a lot of anxiety for those requiring these new organs. Sadly, many people these days still die waiting for the organ that they require. I asked Professor Forsyth what we as a society can do to help with the problem of the lack of donor organs. I mean, I, I have been involved in this area for a very long time. I think it's a duty of transplant surgeons to not only get involved in the ethics of transplant, the immunology of transplant, but also to discuss with, with society, with our community, about the benefits and, and therefore the shortage of organ donors. Um, I mean, there's been a huge push in, in Scotland, where, where we're sitting at the moment, and, and also across the UK, to increase the number of, uh, of, of donors. And, and in large part, that's been successful. Um, the, the last 10 years has seen a huge increase in um, the availability of donor organs for patients who require transplants. I mean, for instance, I was just looking at a statistic the other day which said that um, the kidney transplant waiting list over the last few years has dropped by 27%. So, there has been an improvement, partly because of people just being aware. We know that 90% of the population stopped in the street saying, you know, do you approve of organ donation for transplant purposes? They say yes. So, so we know that the, most of the public is behind us in this. And it's really turning that 90% into when approached at a time of tragedy in, in lives uh, to, to say that 90% still remains because actually when we approach at that time we still get uh, a uh, refusal to carry on to transplant from the relatives of the person who has died uh, in you know, 30, even 40% in parts of the country. Um, and, and that's because when you're approached at that time, if you put yourself in the position of the person who is, is approached, they, they don't want to be asked another question. They're, they're, they're going through a tragic time in their lives and it's, we're asking them another difficult question. They maybe don't know what their loved one would want to have done. So we say, please talk about this. The death is a taboo subject in the Western society. We don't like talking about it because, it, you know, if we talked about it, it might happen to us. Um, so we say, please talk about this within your family. Find out what others would want to do. Because if you are then approached in circumstances where organ donation is possible, 
then perhaps you will know the answer easily. And that will be so much better for you, for carrying out the wishes of your loved one, and for the people who receive the life-saving transplants. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Anamnesis Podcast. I'd like to say a big thank you to Professor John Forsyth for finding the time in his busy schedule to meet with me. If you want to find out more about the history of transplantation, I'd like to recommend uh, History of Organ Transplantation by David Hamilton. Uh, it's an excellent book, um, and he goes into much more of the detail than, uh, than I ever could. Um, if you're in the UK and would like to find out a bit more about organ donation, please go to organdonation.nhs.uk. They've got some really good resources to help you make your decision about joining the organ donation register. I'll leave links to that and more in the show notes. Um, as always, you can find them at the website. Uh, that's anamnesiscast.com. That's A-N-A-M-N-E-S-I-S cast.com. And as always, you can follow us on Twitter at Anamnesiscast. Thank you so much for listening.